Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 619 with Seth Godin. I have admired Seth's work for quite some time, and he's got some excellent insights on how you can ship out more creative work, and in fact, why much of what you're doing, we could consider creative work. So you'll learn one, the real reason why we don't think we're creative. Two, the most effective way to overcome creative block. And three, why you should embrace your imposter syndrome. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we referenced, you can find them at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP619. Now here's Seth's story. Seth Godin is the author of 19 international bestsellers that have been translated into over 35 languages and have changed the way people think about marketing and work. He's a recent inductee to the Marketing Hall of Fame and also a member of the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame and the Guerrilla Marketing Hall of Fame. In addition to his writing and speaking, Seth was founder and CEO of Squidoo.com. His blog, which you can find by simply typing Seth into Google, that's the top result, pretty cool, is the most popular marketing blog in the world. And before his work as writer and blogger, Seth was vice president of direct marketing at Yahoo, a job he got after selling them his pioneering 1990s online startup, Yoyadine. Big thanks to Seth for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Seth. Seth, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Who knows where here is anymore, but we're here together. Whoa. (laughs) Everything you say or write is profound. (laughs) Well, I'm super excited to dig into your latest book. It's called The Practice. And I don't want to do flattery, but I genuinely mean that you are among the most prolific and brilliant writers that uh, I've encountered. I, I haven't read all your books Many people have, and I'd probably be better if I did. But it sounds like in your book, The Practice, is is this sort of your secret? Or tell us, what's this book all about? Because it seems like you're really kind of giving away the the inner secrets here a little bit. Oh, I don't think it's my secret. I think it's our secret. I think everybody knows that they need to ship creative work because being a drone and a cog is no fun. And I think everyone realizes that there's no such thing as the muse, that talent is overrated. And that if we just showed up and put ourselves on the hook, we could not only do better work, but uh, do it with more joy. And what I wanted to do in this book is capture a whole bunch of truths that we keep reminding ourselves that the opposite might be true. We're confused. There's no such thing as writer's block. There's uh, all these skills that we could learn that are masquerading as attitudes, etc. All of these things 
are ways that we can decide to contribute more. And so this book's really personal in the sense that I wrote it so that I would remind myself of what I needed to hear. Yes. And it seems like a a number, or or you tell me, or perhaps all of them are coming from your legendary, you know, Seth's blog, short blog posts from across the years. I I was just reading where ideas come from and uh, it's almost like poetic. And then I see, oh, well, that was indeed one of your, your posts like 10 years ago. And you've sort of collected the relevant ones and and put them in a in a beautiful Not, package. I think there's like 220 essays and perhaps 6 of them have ever been seen before, maybe 8. Oh, really? And I oh, yeah. keyed in on those. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, so then maybe let's let's hit some definitions just to make sure we're on the same page here. So, ship and creative work. I think I know what you mean by these things, but can you establish those for our audience of professionals? So, creative means it might not work. It's never been done before. It's personal. It's generous. It's human. It's for someone else. You're solving an interesting problem. That's what creative means. Work, because you have to do it even when you don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. Work, because you put yourself on the hook. You made a promise. And ship, because if it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. If you say, well, I had the idea for blank years ago. I was going to write Hamilton. No one cares because you didn't ship it. We had the idea for Airbnb. There you but go. We never did anything with it. So understood. And, and so ship just really means kind of like deliver, get out the door, execute, do the thing. Right. Now, there's a Nike problem. And the Nike problem is when you say just ship it, you could think that means what the hell, put mm. crap out there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying merely ship it. Do it without commentary, do it without drama, simply do it because that's the work. Okay. Well, well let's dig into a little bit of, of the particulars here. So you say that creativity is not a gift for a select few, but rather a choice. And so help us think through that these mindsets here in terms of contrasting them and, and how does one make the choice? Have you ever done one thing in your life that was creative? Have you ever once solved a problem, told a joke, connected with someone who needed to be connected to? The answer to anyone I've ever asked it to is yes, of course, right? So if you can do it once, then the only question is, can you do it again? And if yes, you can. So that means it's a choice. It's not like you're sitting there waiting for some fly ball to land on your head. The reason we feel that way is because we're afraid of the bad ideas. We're afraid of the things that won't work. And so, because we're so afraid of the bad ones, we throw them all out. Yeah, let's dig into this this fear, this emotional piece. So we're afraid of bad ideas and thusly, well, I, I think about professionals, all the times in, in the conference rooms, <laughs> people are choosing not to share things. <laughs> Correct. And, and a lot of that is fear, maybe, maybe with good reason from experience, they get their hands slapped or, or they get yelled at or dismissed or invalidated in, in, in one or another way. But can you help us think through is like, if, if you got some things to share and you got some fear, what should we do? Fear has some very important elements. Uh, fear that keeps you from crossing the highway on foot at rush hour is a good thing. Fear of a saber toothed tiger is a good thing. That's what we evolved to have. But it is false fear when we feel nervous before giving a speech because nothing bad is going to happen to you. In fact, dancing with that fear will make a better outcome happen, not a worse outcome. So fear needs to be seen as a compass. 
as an opportunity to lean into that feeling because that feeling is telling us we're on to something. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not feeling it, I would argue you're probably not trying hard enough. I like that a lot. And and so you're sharing not just that you reinterpret the fear like, oh, no, I am excited, which is a good strategy it's for, you know, nerves and stage fright, but but to actually seek it out like, oh, we got a compass that's pointing us somewhere here. And boy, we had Tara Moore on the show saying that there are two Hebrew words for fear. I don't know if I can recall them, like yura and, and something else. And they're kind of very different flavors. And one of them is kind of like the fear of inhabiting kind of a larger space. And that's kind of a good one. And so that very much syncs with the notion of it's a compass that's pointing you into some, some cool territories. Yeah, you don't hire a coach to train you so you can run a marathon without getting tired. It's understood you get tired. The way you finish a marathon is by figuring out where to put the tired. And the same thing is true for any contribution we're seeking to make. Where do I put the fear? Mm-hmm. And so where do I put it in terms of your internal mental categorizations of what does this mean and how do I respond to it? That's right. And a lot of people are just hoping it will go away uh-huh. and it doesn't go away. Well, I, I think that's encouraging to hear right now. I mean, you're pretty legendary. And so you're, you're sharing on the record that you're still feeling the, the fear and, and the stuff right here, right now with this book? Only when I'm working hard. Mm -hmm. I can coast all day without feeling fear. But yes, if I'm doing my job properly, there's definitely, uh uh-oh, maybe I reached too far out of the boat. Uh Uh-oh, maybe I'm too much in a hurry. Maybe I'm not being clear. Maybe I forgot to do something that would have been a useful contribution. Yeah, all of that, all the time. Well, now that we're inside your internal mind dialogue, can we hang out a little longer? So that shows up. And then what comes next in the conversation? Thank you. (laughs) Please go on. Thank you. I mean, it's such a privilege to be able to do this work and to have that voice in my head to keep me on track. I don't try to deny it. I don't try to rationalize it. I don't argue with it. I just say, thanks for letting me know. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. And, and as, as, as I'm sort of sitting with that, it really is true that if you don't have any fear, it's sort of like you don't care about the outcome. Or maybe not the outcome, there's a whole lot there. You don't care about it. It's not a high value to you personally. It's not of great importance, the, the stuff, if there's not some level of fear. In my experience, is that get a fair characterization? Well, I guess, I mean, if let's assume you're not a sociopath. All right. <laughs> there's one thing, which is, confidence and confidence is being sure it's going to work. And the other thing is belief, which is, I'm not sure it's going to work, but I'm going to try it anyway. And if all you're doing all day are things that you are confident about, then you've got a challenge because it means you're not doing any art. You're not creating anything. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's good. Well, so let's dig into a few of your maybe provocative assertions. So you say writer's block is a myth. What's really going on here? Why do we sometimes have difficulty getting creative when, when we want to flip the switch, but it ain't, doesn't seem to be flipping? Well, no one gets talker's block or bicyclist's block or plumber's block. So <laughs> there's no reason to think that writer's block would be an exception. What we really have is fear of bad writing. And if you do enough of the bad stuff, some good stuff will get through. But to say I am incapable of typing something is absurd. What you're saying is because I am so afraid of what might come out, I don't want to type anything. 
Okay. Well, and then, so then I suppose it's quite possible. I mean, this is a different phenomenon. I mean, you could type something and it might be bad. <laughs> I guess there are times in which you're, you're in the flow, you're rocking, you're grooving. And, and there are times when, when you're not, and it's like, okay, I could throw some sentences on this, this page that I will surely delete uh, afterwards versus, oh, wow, this is amazing. So talk to us about flow. How do we get more of that? Well, so people want flow and then they'll do the creative work, but that never is the way it works. You do creative work when you don't feel like it and then flow shows up. And I appreciate your kind words about my writing, but I write bad stuff all the time. You just don't see it. <laughs> and my friend Isaac Asimov wrote 400 books, published them. And he told me that his secret was he typed for six hours a day, every day. And I got to tell you, typing a book only takes about three days. Writing a book takes a long time because it's figuring out which words to leave out that take all the time. Well, and so then let's think about Seth's blog for a second here. So every day, is it 100% of days? It, it sure looks like it as I've yeah. been there. You're putting something out. Sometimes you don't feel like it. Oh, I write three or four or five blog posts for everyone you read. And mm -hmm. I have a backlog because I don't want to break a streak. I don't wake up at four o'clock in the morning and type something and hit publish. All right. So you, you've got a backlog and, and you're, you're cranking whether you feel like it or not. And, and are there some rituals there for you? Well, the real ritual is I ask myself a question every single time I see something in the world that I don't understand. And it's, why is it like this? Because I refuse to believe the world is magic. And so I want to understand how does a refrigerator work? And why do some doors pull and some doors push? And how did that person get elected? Everything around us happened. Why did it happen? And if I find that my answer is worth sharing, it becomes a blog post. Oh, I, I love this so much. So why is it like this? Gets the wheels turning in all kinds of places. And then what happens next? So you've got a curiosity about uh, the refrigerator or an election outcome. I mean, do, do you Google or, or what's the next step? No, you make an assertion, right? I mean, some things you can look up, but not many. You make an assertion about what are the fundamental human desires and needs and wants and hopes and dreams and fears that led somebody to do what they did, mm -hmm. right? And Milton Friedman would like to believe that everything happens because you get paid. Well, that's clearly not the case. So why is it that there's hundreds of thousands of people with podcasts who deep down know they're never going to make a lot of money doing it, right? Why is it that when Monster came out with Beats headphones, which could be seen in any test to be inferior to headphones that cost much less, how did they build a multi-billion dollar brand, right? Why did people buy those headphones? Questions like that. Yeah. Well, you're right. And they really do get you. Well, I guess that's what I find so intriguing is like you pose these questions and, and I'm already curious about them, like the refrigerator and the beats. <laughs> like I just, I kind of want to know now. And, and so, but you say the next step is not so much to go Google something, but to think more about the deep fundamental human stuff behind it. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't work for physics. Refrigerators, mm -hmm. you should not make assertions. You should just Google how they work. Somebody desired cold profoundly <laughs> for their food. Okay, gotcha. But, but and with the beats, though, I am. I almost did it right now. 
the history of Beats headphones. But you stop and think like, you know, what is it people are want? What are they after? What is that has the brand speaking to? It's like they want to be cool with a particular flavor of cool. It's like I want to be like Dr. Dre. It, it, or, or so I'm just no, spitballing. You're here. onto something. Yeah. I mean, I think what Noel figured out was that headphones were a chance to create jewelry for men. And he came up by working with Dr. Dre with a piece of jewelry for a certain demographic psychographic that you could justify wearing right next to your face. Mm -hmm. And the market for jewelry is so much bigger than the incremental add-on market for electronics that do a job, right? Because those are a commodity. And what happened in many communities is having artificial Dr. Dre's lowered your status having real ones raised yeah. your status. And so that's what he was selling was status, not audio reproduction. Okay, thank you. Well, well, let's think about, as I read your book, The Practice, I what comes to mind are those who are producing, I don't know, books, videos, movies, etc. cetera. I, I liked your, your definition of creativity was broader. But if you imagine yourself uh, in the environment of a, a white-collar worker going to an office when you could go to an office and, and interacting there, uh, what are you thinking that there, there's something that you know this community of professionals likely does that stifles their creativity? Is, is, are there some recurring mistakes that you encourage folks cut out? Well, yeah. The biggest one is they think it's not their job. Like, let's pick an accountant. Accounting is not bookkeeping. Bookkeepers are generally, my bookkeeper accepted, generally commodity providers that you don't care who it is. You just give them the data and they give you back the answer. It is a cog job. But to be a successful accountant, you're doing something that involves engaging with other humans, right? So the accountants at Enron did a bad job, but not because they were bad at bookkeeping but because they lost their moral compass and weren't able to have creative, useful conversations with their clients. And that's hard work. And it's different every time you do it. So it's so easy to avoid it and say, I'm just an accountant. Mm -hmm. When in fact, if you want to win at accounting by any measure, you have to be a human before you're an accountant. And to be a human means you have to solve the interesting problems that accounting presents. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, that's exactly why I've stuck with my accountant for all this time. It's like, yeah. for one, I thought, you know what? I'm not really good at this stuff. So maybe I probably should outsource it. But then when I look at the bill, it's like, oh, do I want to keep with this? But sure enough, it's like these little gems. It's like, oh, well, you know what? If you're a single member LLC, but we have you taxed as an S corp, then the result is that a portion of your stuff is a wage and the other portion is not subject to payroll tax. Like all this stuff is like, so you're just gonna, you're just making money appear for me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's like you, you create more money than I pay you and take something off my plate. You're huge. Yeah, but I got to interject here. It's much deeper than that. He didn't simply make you more money because there are lots of ways someone could make you more money. They could trade, teach you to be a bond trader. What he did was he made you feel smart. He made you feel like to not hear this tomorrow would make you stupid. He helped you with your reflection of your own status which changed your relationship with other people around you. So there's layers beyond layers beyond layers. And this accountant may think that all they're doing is work in the system, but 
what they're really doing is understanding what Pete needs to hear to feel engaged in a positive cycle. Yeah, that connects. And I, I recall, well, I just want to hit this for a moment. This is this notion of, of layers and the human needs and desires. I remember, I was reading stuff that you wrote. <laughs> and we, we talked about benefits versus features. You know, people don't want to drill, they want a hole in the wall. But even more than they want a hole in the wall, you took it further. Can you recap that for us? Sure. So Ted Levitt in 62 wrote that no one wants a drill bit. What they want is a hole and they have to buy the drill bit to get the hole. And I went, no, you don't need a hole. You need a place, you put your lag bolts. Well, you don't need that either. You need a way to hang the shelf. Well, you don't need that either. You need a way to get the books off the coffee table. And you don't need that. You need the way it makes you feel when your spouse says, thank you. That's why you went to the hardware store. And so likewise with this accounting situation, it's like, well, yeah, there's some economic stuff going on, sure. Uh, but even more so, it's true. I do like feeling smart. <laughs> and, and, and I do like feeling like together we have accomplished something that is, I don't know, optimal, clever. That is, we, we found an opportunity legally and uh, appropriately, <laughs> you know, and, and we grabbed it in an exciting way. It was exciting for me. I don't know, even though it was accounting. Okay, well, so, oh, you got so much stuff. Let's hear about imposter syndrome. So you posit that that's not so much something that we need to cure and get over, but rather it's something else. Tell us about that. Right. So no one talked about imposter syndrome until two women wrote about it 30 years ago. And now suddenly people are acknowledging that they have it too. They feel like a fraud. Who are they to speak up? Who are they to have a podcast? Who are they to be creative? How do I make it go away? How do I make imposter syndrome go away? And people are surprised when I say, well, but you're an imposter. It can't go away because you're an imposter. You're accurately feeling something, which is if you're leading, if you're doing something that hasn't been done before, you can't be sure you're right. You can't prove that you're qualified. Therefore, we have to embrace the idea that all leaders at some level are imposters. And again, it's a symptom that you're doing this generous creative work. So once we embrace that, then we feel okay about it or, or what happens then? No, you never feel okay about it. <laughs> Not if you're a normal person. What you do instead is say, this is work. That's in the subtitle, right? Be awesome at your job, not be awesome at your hobby. If it's your hobby, you should do it exactly the way that gives you short-term and long-term joy. But if it's your work, well, good news. You don't get blisters and calluses at your job. You don't have to stand outside in the rain and dig a ditch. Bad news. You have to do emotional labor. And the emotional labor means dealing with imposter syndrome. It means dancing with fear. It means showing up when you don't feel like it because it's work. Yeah, I really like that. When you put them right next to each other as a contrast, it's like you're choosing a form of hard or a, yeah. a form of, of discomfort. Uh, which one? I think it's labor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking about the movie Office Space, where at the end, the guy chooses the other one. He's like, you know what? This is better. <laughs> I prefer the construction. Okay. Well, so, so tell us, Seth, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things? Okay. So the reason it's worth writing a book and not another blog post is because books are easy to share. You can say to two or three other people, let's all read this and support each other through it. That's why I wrote a book. I believe we are 
not spending enough time looking at each other and talking about how we will make things better by making better things. And so my hope is that people will embrace a practice and use it as a tool for good. Thank you. All right. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Years ago, my friend and teacher, the late Zig Ziglar said, you can get everything in life you want if you'll help enough other people get what they want. And some people hear that as transactional. So I've sort of altered it to life can be helping other people get what they want. And that's a good compass for me. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Oh, the most important thing that people need to learn, truly learn, is statistics. And the most interesting thing they can learn, as far as I've discovered after reading a lot of books, is just how profound the process of the evolution of species is. If you want to understand how COVID is doing what COVID is doing, if you want to understand epidemiology, if you want to understand uh, how we have to dance around our future on this planet, you need to understand what Darwin figured out, that many, many small changes repeated through inheritance over long periods of time creates the world. Oh, Seth, you're so fascinating. Statistics. I didn't expect you to say that. Why is that so critical? (laughs) You know, I read an essay last week that we should get rid of calculus in high school and teach everyone statistics instead, because you don't need to know calculus. Calculus is a stepping stone to higher math, but very few people need higher math. Everyone needs statistics. The people who think that the polls were wrong on the last election don't understand what polls are. The people who don't get what interest rates are and why risk even exists in the world. I mean, all of it. You can see the world so much more clearly if you understand what statistics are. Okay. And how about a favorite book? I think it's really weird that people associate books only with school. The average American reads two books a year, buys one, and that it's awkward to talk about a book you wrote. But the book I wrote, Lynchpin, which took a year of my life, which changed my life, which I listen to on audio on a regular basis, is a book that I would say to people, here, I wrote this. I hope you'll check it out. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Okay. So the best tool I've purchased in the last year is an Austrian smoothing plane. Hmm. It costs $300. It takes shavings of cedar that are microscopically thin. And it's just every time I touch it, it makes me smile. It's just magnificent. And in terms of my job, I just discovered the Indigo Press, which is, can be used to print PDFs in book form. Like it's one giant laser printer, bigger than a house. And I've used it before, but now it can print, and I know we're on the radio, but you can see these. It can print uh, these matte uh, packaging, hmm. for example, that you might find uh, at Whole Foods that they put granola in. And it can do small runs of just a couple thousand at a time. And so I found this company called EPAC that has an indigo printer. And I just got to say, I just keep looking at this stack of things that I made and it puts a big smile on my face. So that's a giant tool and an Austrian smoothing plane is a small tool. And between them, you might find something juicy. What is it about the Austrian smoothing plane that makes you smile? It does exactly what it's supposed to do with no complaint. It's perfectly engineered. It doesn't weigh a lot. They could have made it heavier. 
It doesn't have unnecessary controls, but the controls it has do exactly what they're supposed to do. And I've been woodworking for 40 years, more, 50, but I'm not great at it. But this tool, I was great at it. And that says something about the design of the tool. Mm-hmm. And how would a favorite habit? I don't go to meetings. I don't watch television. And I don't eat meat. I think those three habits have helped me a great deal. Tell me about not going to meetings. Uh, what do you do instead? I think a conversation between two people is not a meeting. It's a conversation. Those are good. If you're putting together a bunch of people so that you can make sure they're working today, that's just about compliance. That should be canceled. If you really want people's input, you should create a shared Google Doc and create an environment where people will be encouraged to contribute to it. If you want to tell people what the specs are for the tech standards at the conference you're running, you should send a memo. That there's so many things that we're doing today because Zoom is so easy to click a button on that consume most of our day that are mostly about power, not about communication. Seth, tell us, how do you decline a meeting invitation? Oh, I think there's very few penalties for being respectful, clear, and direct. And so I say, I'm sorry, I don't, I can't do this meeting. Can you send me a Google Doc instead? All right. That's <laughs> short and sweet. <laughs> well, all right. Next up, you've written a lot of, you've written a lot of stuff. Tell me, is there a particular quotable gem that you hear more often than others? Like Seth, I loved it when you said blank. I would say uh, the shortest blog post I recall writing ever is the one I hear about a lot. I don't know if it's the most. It's you don't need more time. You just need to decide. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where should we point them? You can get excerpts from the practice at trustyourself.com, which mm-hmm. used to be the title of the book, but I changed it with my editor, but I kept the domain. And you can read 7,500 blog posts if you've got some spare time at seths.blog, S-E-T-H-S dot B-L-O-G. And I loved your bio. You can get there just by Googling Seth. <laughs> There's a power move. <laughs> That's good. It's the equivalent of my Dr. Dre headphones. (laughs) And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs. It's pretty simple. Never, ever say I'm just doing my job. Simply do your job. Do it in a way that we would miss you if you were gone. Because yes, management has been exploiting labor for a really long time. But if you're going to go to work anyway, you might as well go to work and be a linchpin. Seth, this has been a joy. Thank you so much. I wish you lots of luck and fun and all the ways you're shipping work. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. We'll see ya. I think the piece that stuck with me the most was when you don't feel okay about what you're putting out there, like you're, you're an imposter. And he said, you never feel okay about it, not if you're a normal person. What you do instead is say, this is work. Be awesome at your job, not be awesome at your hobby. If it's your work, Good news, you don't get blisters and calluses at your job. You don't have to stand outside in the rain and dig a ditch. The bad news, you have to do emotional labor. The emotional labor means dealing with imposter syndrome. It means dancing with fear. It means showing up when you don't feel like it because it's work. That's so huge for me because I think sometimes we think if there is an unpleasant emotion, or hey, I'm guilty. If I think there's an unpleasant emotion, something is wrong. It needs to be fixed or addressed. It's like, no, this is just the kind of hard that we're dealing with here. 
And it's it's not the heart of it's raining and I've got blisters digging a ditch. It's the heart of, ooh, I'm uncertain, I'm uncomfortable, there's emotional labor, there's cognitive load, mm, challenge, unresolved tension. And that's how our jobs are hard. And that's okay and normal, just as it's okay and normal for it to be hard to dig a ditch in the rain. And we can kind of embrace that and, and just work with it and move right along. It's all good. Not a problem. Just something to to feel and experience and work through that tension. Great stuff from Seth Godin. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP619. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe to catch our next guest, Ann Grady. She's back with some pro tips on resilience and how to have more of it. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.